You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for healthcare professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist, a hematologist, and an LLS volunteer. And I want to thank all of you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we're going to be discussing survivorship care in adults, including survivorship care planning and strategies to support adherence, disparities, and challenges in cancer survivorship care in minority groups communication and coordination among cancer survivors, caregivers, and primary care provider, and education and support resources for healthcare providers and patients. And we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Meghna Alawadi, who is a cancer survivorship consultant in the Department of Hematology and Oncology at the Mayo Clinic in Florida. Dr. Alawadi is currently an assistant professor of medicine offering survivorship care to a variety of patients post-cancer treatment, including GI, head and neck, and blood cancers. Meghna, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate LLS and the audience here for being with us. And you know what? Thank you. Thank you for saying thank you. That's wonderful. We are lucky, fortunate, blessed in the United States to have millions of cancer survivors. I want to just say, by the way, my wife is one of them. My wife had acute leukemia about 23 years ago. So all of this extra time has been a blessing and a bonus. I'd love to hear about your program at the Mayo Clinic, about the history of it and where have you been and where are you going? Yeah, thank you so much for that great question. Survivorship program was started about seven years ago in hematology oncology and it was designed to take care of all cancer survivors whether blood cancers or solid cancers and the main aim is to give them a roadmap of health after cancer treatment is completed and sometimes the patients do feel lost where do we go from here after you know their hematologist or their oncologist has completed their surveillance care and they have crossed the five-year mark in most cases so this provides a roadmap of health. It addresses issues with their previous treatment, side effects, long-term, short-term, pre-existing medical conditions, screening for basic, more well-known cancers while keeping in mind the risk for new cancers in future. It also provides emotional, psychological screening and support for mental health conditions that may happen during the treatment or or pre-existing sleep quality, nutrition, exercise, evaluation of if patient is at risk for a genetic syndrome with their current cancer or future cancers, if they have strong family history of cancers and evaluating the risk factors for lifestyle that maybe also contributing. So it's a very global 360 approach to evaluating the patient after their cancer treatment is completed. Let me ask you more about that. As I was listening, on one hand, you're talking about sort of the different tasks in survivorship. One is surveillance and one is wellness and one is support. Let me get your sense in terms of a survivorship program within a big cancer center. What would you say the priorities or the place where you can have the most impact for cancer survivors? I think it's very important to align their priorities while you're educating them. I think there's no one size fits all. 
there are these bullet points that we go over in each meeting, but it may be different for every patient. For them, mental health may take precedent over other issues or their fear of cancers may need to be alleviated with reassurance that monitoring does play a very significant role in detection and prevention of advanced cancers. So it really uh, is about shared decision making and as we do list these priorities with the patient we want to rearrange them in order of what their preference is for some of them risk of falls or memory loss is what they are very scared about and they're not so much worried about their cancer recurrence so sometimes it follows an expected sort of a survivorship cure path and sometimes we have to reorganize it based on their preference yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that is patient-centered. When you're seeing cancer survivors, what would you say are the more common problems that they're willing to share? I think the fear of recurrence and fatigue are definitely high on the list. A lot of patients experience significant fatigue and they do worry about their cancer coming back. Sometimes they know the surveillance plan moving forward after five years and sometimes they don't. Having a good primary care and caregiver support and shared decision-making and communication can go a long way in alleviating those fears. But yes, the fear of recurrence, fatigue, and sometimes undiagnosed cardiac conditions can be contributing to a lot of what they're experiencing. So really a good medical evaluation at the first visit goes a long way. So alleviating fears about recurrence, heart health, future of their health and the risk to their other siblings and children and such like things do lead to these initial conversations are more centered around that. There's been a lot of talk over a lot of years already about survivorship care planning and care plans. What's your approach to that? The survivorship care plans, if you're working with the EHR system, a lot of the EHR systems are able to generate now a survivorship care plan as long as they pull information from various sources and can give you a customized plan if you're working in an EHR setting. They can be quite useful as a document, especially for the primary care providers and even for the patient because a copy is generally given both to the patient and for their primary care providers to provide a roadmap of what to expect from here on. It's also a good summary of the treatments that they have received and expectations of what side effects to expect. I think it can be a useful document, but it's also uh, depends on the times the providers have. If they're in a primary care setting, sometimes there's not enough time to sort of generate these plans. So EHR communication can go a long way in case there's difficulty in generating or substituting these plans. I'd like to focus for a while on underserved populations and disparities in survivorship care. So what are your observations on that? Just like the incidence of cancer, racial and ethnic minorities do experience a high rate of certain cancers and poor outcomes, and it does translate in their survivorship journey as well. It can be attributed to cultural belief, healthcare practices, language barriers, geographical distribution of where the patient is, their access to care. The rural population face more unique challenges and limited health care. They may have longer travel distances to obtain health care, especially in survivorship phase. So, so these can be limiting factors and can create disparities as survivorship care is administered to cancer survivors. So for, say, Mr. X, a patient who is traveling to Mayo Clinic, Florida from a relatively smaller town within Florida or outside of Florida, where they really don't have a setup for survivorship care, 
they can be limited in what to do next kind of approach. And this is where telemedicine has been very instrumental in uh, providing survivorship care because it can be very effectively administered through telemedicine because uh, we can get a good summary of their treatment history. We can communicate a lot of things. We can see the patient even if we don't cannot physically examine them. But it, since this video opportunity has really bridged some of the challenges we were having with access, uh, as long as they have a good internet connection, we can stay in touch, we can get some testing done locally. For some of it, they can travel to Mayo Clinic. But yes, it's not as optimal as staying, you know, right next door or in a drivable distance. But some of the uh, challenges can be alleviated. It is very useful, again, to understand, especially for our minority group, their preferences and their style of how they like their care to be administered. And especially with our non-English speaking patients, it's very important to have a translator and not skip that step if they speak partial English. And, and it's always beneficial to have a translator, whether it's on video or in person, to really understand their preferences. And the sooner we get a sense of how their cultural belief towards healthcare is, what are their limitations, the better tailored plan we can design for them. You know, one of the topics that's interested me in survivorship care is, I'll call it pushback, buy-in and pushback, both on the provider's point of view, from their point of view, and also from the patient's. So let me ask you about that, I guess, from both points of view. Perhaps let's focus on minority groups. Buy-in and pushback. Tell us more. I think it's a lot to do with how much and how you're communicating. I think you have to really understand if the patient's preference is small baby steps toward their care or they like to just do things at one time. Say they're coming to a tertiary center, they would like to complete multiple things with their visit. And some patients that we'd like to just slowly progress. We've been through a lot of visits and treatments already, and we'd like to slow down things a little bit and take it one step at a time. Uh, once we understand that and also understand financial limitations, you know, if a patient is experiencing financial toxicity and additional testing can be burdensome on them, we really want to minimize the plan according to what is most important to them. And the emergent stuff, if you feel like they have imminent coronary artery disease that needs addressing, then yes, you do want to communicate that I know that you're overwhelmed, but this is a priority. If they don't have any impending immediate conditions and they want to take it slow, there's nothing wrong with that. As long as you have frequent contact with them, whether yourself or through your nursing staff and your allied staff, and you don't lose sight of uh, their well-being, you actually can create a very strong bond with your patients in survivorship phase. They begin to trust you for their overall health, and you want to reassure them that you're not going to take it away from their primary care providers in any way, but be an adjunct in their health care, be a champion for them, and provide that gap that sometimes can happen between oncology and primary care. Although a lot of primary care providers feel very comfortable taking care of their patients, it used to be more like a myth that they have a limitation in training, but there's no such thing. Most primary care providers are actually quite willing to help their cancer survivor patients. Unless, of course, there's a, I think head and neck cancer is one of those areas where they may need some additional support, which survivorship programs can provide them as well. How about pushback from physicians? I've been involved in survivorship care and, uh, and found that sometimes that's a tough group. So what's your experience? 
I've not experienced a lot of pushback. I think there's a lot of awareness now with oncology services. With Fortunately, we have good cancer treatments and hence a high number of cancer survivors and the oncology crew would also like to see their life optimized and their screenings completed after their primary cancer is treated. So I've not had major pushback from them, but I think the main challenge I've had is a lot of these patients are sometimes not referred to survivorship programs, and that is one, because a patient's tired of you know cancer treatment and they want a break. And sometimes it may look like the patient doesn't have too many issues that would benefit from survivorship program. However, when we really start to interview them, then we do find there's almost always things that we can help them during their survivorship phase both from the treatment perspective and also from what lies ahead and what they're at risk at for other health conditions. So it's never a visit that never helps kind of thing. You know, it always helps. So I would encourage all physician community to utilize these services and work with primary care providers also to transition care effectively with the roadmap that's made by shared decision-making. There's a group of patients who are... The expression that I've heard before is living with cancer as a chronic disease. And, you know, you think about patients with CLL or CML or some diseases like that. What what are some of their special needs? Yeah, so there is the CLL group and the CML group who are living with cancer on maintenance therapy and sometimes on active surveillance. These groups continue to have their other medical issues that come with either age or risk factors that are lifestyle or genetic related. Some of them, and there's some data that some of them are higher risk for some secondary cancers as well. So we have to actively be aware of that and um, you know track their symptomatology and get proper testing done at the earliest sign. So as a general rule, I would tell them if your symptoms are lasting more than two weeks, please notify me. I have to just kind of make sure this is not just a normal cough and cold or a normal backache that you're having. So I think educating them goes a long way. A lot of our CLL patients go through dermatology surveillance because of higher risk of skin cancers and other secondary malignancies that can come. We have to make sure that their screening exams are on top, like their breast screening exam and their colonoscopy, uh, while they continue on active surveillance or on maintenance therapy or while they're living with cancer. What are your observations about the psychosocial issues for people living with blood cancers? It's not easy for them, you know. I mean, we see them for 15, 20 minutes or 30 minutes, but they have to live with fear of their disease progressing, how they're going to manage their day-to-day activities, the finances. It does, you know, lead to some amount of anxiety and insomnia in these patients. And I think it's really important to screen them for mental health concerns, if they're sleeping adequately, if they're excessively worrying. And that's one of the earliest questions I have during a survivorship visit is about their mental health. The financial and the advanced care planning worries do happen a lot in these patients. So our social work group gets actively involved pretty early on in helping manage their advanced directives. If they have any other concerns regarding finances, traveling, transportation. So these issues do happen when you're living with cancer long term. They do also get their geriatric issues as they approach, you know, above 65 and 75. Some of them do develop memory impairment and fall risks. And so a healthy lifestyle has to be promoted continuously, you know, in continuum for anyone living with cancer. The focus on nutrition and exercise as tolerated. And uh, if they're not able to exercise, you want to know why. 
and kind of work towards that. So really you want to improve their lifestyle and make sure they get enough antioxidants in their diet on a day-to-day basis. It reminds me, there's a, a lot of things that we can't change. We can't change the diagnosis they have had or have, can't change the treatment that they had or will have, but changing lifestyle is a possibility. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. Let me ask you about the interaction between internal medicine and you're an internist and a geriatrician and oncology. I mean, to me, I think it's really exciting, but I'd love to hear your experience and the integration of your work within, a, again, a big cancer center. Yeah, I think my role to the oncologist is to provide them with some relief that their patient is still being monitored after five years for recurrences because sometimes unexpected late recurrences do happen. And our job is to really catch those relapses or if there's a new cancer at the earliest stage so we don't have to think of advanced treatment at those stage. And and I think that is the number one reassurance we want to give you know our oncology team. At the same time, because oncology is limited in the time that they have to take care of so many of the issues, including lifestyle, exercise, making sure patients up to date with their screening, we want to provide them the reassurance that not only is the primary cancer being looked at, the patient is looked at globally. Heart health is a very big thing in cancer survivors. A lot of patients have calcified plaques that were, were not a priority at that time, were not a symptom issue at that time, but in their survivorship phase, they want to address the cardiac risk factors that the patient has. And sometimes uh, after radiation and chemo, they may have some changes in their heart function. They may develop arrhythmias. So cardiac health monitoring is also a very big part. And, uh, you know, we want to convey to our oncology team that even though at that time it was, uh, you know, not an issue, not a priority, but in survivorship phase, it will be looked at and uh, will be addressed uh, to prevent heart attacks and heart disease in these patients. Prevention of the primary cancer, looking for secondary cancers and heart health and lifestyle changes. Those are the big cornerstones which we want to reassure our oncology team and they've been very supportive. If I have a question about a scan that I had to do because I'm worried about recurrence, they're always there to help me, to give me some guidelines about future surveillance that need to be monitored, that need to be acted upon if there's a question about it. At the Mayo Clinic, is there sort of a template for how long patients are followed and when they're discharged? Yes, we've tried to create templates where we realize that survivorship care is so tailored to the patient that a lot of these patients don't follow the templates. Some of them can transition to primary care after you know a couple of years of being washed in survivorship clinics and they're doing well. They have low complexity in survivorship care, but it takes time to get to know the patient. So you don't want to discharge too early, but if it's a low complexity situation and the patient's very comfortable with their primary care following their overall health, there's nothing wrong with transitioning them in a year or two. Some of the patients are more complex and it does take the team of primary care and survivorship coordinators to kind of step in and share the work as their treatment goes along and as their issues are being addressed. So I think we can become a team with the primary care provider for a little bit longer and then transition, which could be three to four years. But yeah, I think it's not very successful to put a timeline initially that, you know, this is the primary cancer, so this patient is likely only going to lead this much time with the survivorship clinic. And every patient, their model acts differently. What resources are helpful for cancer survivors? 
So fortunately, in this time that we are in, technology has really stepped in and helped with education. Of course, a face-to-face education will always be a cornerstone, but now we have many resources online and through video which can educate our patients and educate the providers. So ASCO has a few training programs. If you go to their websites, they're available for primary care providers and available for survivorship coordinators to kind of work through algorithms and understand how survivorship care should be administered. That's for the providers. There's also links for the patients to understand disease-specific-wise what to expect during survivorship phase under ASCO. And also, American Cancer Society has a lot of tools that are available both for the patients and the providers that can help them during survivorship care. And LLS uh, has been instrumental in uh, educating patients about blood cancers and their survivorship, and uh, we're very grateful for the resources. I use them very frequently, and patients are very grateful for the simplicity of the language and the uh, the way the education is disseminated to the patients in a very patient-friendly format. So we want to thank organizations like NLS for the support they have provided to our patients and to the caregivers. So all these resources, both in print and also in video uh, format, are available. A lot of reputed cancer centers also have YouTube channels where they will disseminate information about survivorship and survivorship care. So you can log on to any of these resources and your survivorship care provider can also give you tailored resources to your cancer follow-up. And I think a combination of that is quite helpful in educating our patients and providers. So we got one last question. What would you say is the most enjoyable part of, uh, of survivorship care for you? I think the trust the patients have in their survivorship care providers. And my job is to build trust for their primary care as well, which they already have. But my job is to enhance their trust in their team, in their oncology team, in their primary care provider team, in their rehab specialist, in their nutritionist, in their mental health providers, that everybody together is here to work for you and utilize the resources that you have at hand. Talk to somebody about the symptoms you're having and never hesitate to ask a question. And I think that trust buildup that we have over a period of time, I get to know them. They get to know a little bit about me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But, you know, if I'm late for my appointments, I'll talk about my family a little bit. But, you know, it's that long-term relationship that you develop and you see them go through so many things. And, you know, in your heart, you're just grateful, grateful for the opportunity to work with these patients. You salute their resilience. You thank their doctors. And you pray for them every day that you want them to be blessed with good health and happiness. And you do your part. You do your part as a human, whatever you can do best as a provider, as a friend, as someone who will guide them when they have a question and will always be there for them the most you can humanly, you know, for their needs. So it's that long-term relationship that makes you want to come to work every day. There's never a moment where you regret doing what you're doing. It's just unbelievably satisfying. And I'm extremely grateful that I got to do this in my journey as a physician. I want to thank you, personally, so well said and such a nice message. 
aside from the fact that it really strikes a chord with me personally and as a husband of a cancer survivor as an oncologist. But it's also, I appreciate you recognizing the whole team because particularly the team changes over the years for a cancer survivor. But I think the idea that all of us are involved in that journey during treatment, after treatment, and the hope and the prayer, too, that people uh, will go on and live well, well beyond cancer. So thank you. I really want to thank Dr. Meghna Alawadi, who directs the Cancer Survivorship Program at the Mayo Clinic in Florida. Meghna, thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Miller, and thank you for the podcast and the wonderful session. I want to thank LLS for this opportunity, and thank you for doing all the great work that you all are doing. Incredible amount of help for patients, their families, caregivers, and providers. You know, we all log in. We all learn something new every day. This is a journey that all of us want to learn on and be better at providing care and uh, do better for our patients. So thank you for uh, providing all the support through LLS. Thank you. And I want to thank all of you for listening to this informative and wonderful episode for listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, including a fact sheet on blood cancer survivorship, treatment, and ongoing patient care. Please visit lls.org CE. And for any questions or to refer a patient to LLS, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatment, financial, and support resources that are available in English and Spanish, including survivorship workbooks and caregiver workbooks for adults, children, and adolescents, and young adults. LLS also provides other resources for patients, survivors, and their families, including a series of podcasts that can be found at lls.org support. And I encourage you uh, to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.